0: Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be finishing up this great chapter that's that's been our home for the last month or so. Uh, If you don't have a Bible this morning, we've got Bibles uh, provided for you. They're at the the center of each aisle, uh, just sort of stacked under the chairs. If you want to just wave at somebody down at the end of the aisle, they'd be happy to pass one over to you. Um, And and if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would really love it if you would take that Bible. That would be our gift to you, and we'd love to follow up with you and answer any questions you might have about what you find there. This morning, like I said, we're going to finish up Hebrews chapter 11, which is one of the sweetest, most famous, most beloved passages in this letter that's been our home for the last year almost. It's a, a chapter that's known as the Hall of Faith because it has all of these examples from Israel's history of what faith in action looks like. We started this study of the chapter with this amazing sentence that leads the chapter off, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. What we said is that that means faith is taking the things you hope for, the things that were promised to you, and making them real in your life, claiming them as if they were already here even though they're not, living as if they were as certain as faith claims that they are. And then every example we've seen so far has shown us a little bit more about what it would look like to do that, to do that abstract thing of taking these promises and planting them in your life as if they were substantive already. What we come to today, maybe my my favorite part of the chapter, what we come to today is not another example, another prominent single example that gets described in detail like what we've seen before. But our author just sort of throwing up his hands and saying, you know what, I'm out of time. Like a good preacher who's run up against the noon hour, he just says, you know, I can't go any further. If I I could go further, then I would tell you about this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy, and all these things that happened to them, and your mind would be blown, but I can't, so I'm just going to leave it to you to dig around for yourself. But in in that admission, in the sort of throwing up of his hands, right in the middle of it comes a pivot that's unexpected that's dramatic and even, I would say, radical, and that I think holds the key to understanding what's gonna be required for us if we're gonna let faith define who we are in this life, if we're gonna let our claiming of promises of a world to come shape how we live in this one. Faith, if this dramatic turning point defines it for us, faith judges events and experiences of this life in light of the promised world to come, rather than judging the world to come in light of the events and experiences of this life. Does that distinction make sense? I want to make sure that's clear. That's what we're going to be unpacking. Faith judges the things that happen to us in this life in light of the promised world to come, rather than judging the promised world to come in light of what happens to us in this life. At the heart of this text that runs from verse 32 to verse 40 of chapter 11 is verse 35. Verse 35 is the end of this escalating series of things that were done, these amazing miracles that happened to people who believed. And the culminating one is that some women actually got their dead children back to life because of their faith. People were raised from the dead by faith. And then in the next sentence, in the exact same verse, we're told, Others were tortured, refusing to recant their belief in God, who gave up even their own lives. Same verse, same point, same illustration about what faith is like, means some see their dead brought back to life, and others see their lives taken from them in painful ways. And faith is on display in both of those categories, we're going to be trying to unpack that, that central insight for the rest of our time this morning. I want to do it in three simple steps. I think the, the text lays out for us. That sometimes, I think the text says, faith brings back the dead. You may even get your dead children back, according to Old Testament history. But sometimes, faith costs you everything. It takes even your own life. And here's the crucial point, where we're going to end this morning. What, the, what this text wants to show more than anything else is that if Jesus really is alive, if his resurrection is true, then ultimately the difference between receiving back your dead children and having your life taken away by torture doesn't really matter that much. If Jesus is alive, the difference doesn't really matter. We're going to say a lot more about this. If you found the passage, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together? We're reading verses 32 through verse 40 of chapter 11. This is the word of the Lord. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Sometimes faith brings back the dead. I think that's the point of these first several verses. Verse 32, like I said, breaks off this detailed list of figures from Israel's history. He just sort of throws up his hands, says, I'm out of time, and starts rattling off names and things that happened in the course of the Old Testament story. He lists off names that would have been familiar to his audience. They would have known what those names rec- uh, represented, just like if you were to rattle off names like Washington and Lincoln or Michael Jordan or Bo Jackson. We would know what those what those names mean. They have this, the, the significance of what they accomplished is familiar to us, right? Verse 33 then jumps into the things that these characters saw happen through faith. And a lot of them are described in the books that that bridge the gap from when israel was freed from the exodus during the exodus from from slavery in egypt up to the time when israel had their own land and then and then some of them are are sort of at the end of that after israel's land has been taken away from them and the era of the prophets that's that's those are the names that bracket his list gideon and samson these judges characters that are in between the the deliverance from egypt and the the kingship in the land and then the prophets a sort of summary of of almost all that comes after uh, after David and Solomon are king in Israel. The things that he lists off as happening to them are things that you could read about in the Old Testament. I would encourage you to do it, if, especially if you've got a, a Bible that has cross references. Well, one thing that you could do would be to just look at each of these words or each of these names or, or uh, clauses about what happened and go back and read what's likely he's talking about here. Some of them are pretty easy to identify. He talks about conquering kingdoms and being mighty in war, and it's not hard to see Gideon there, right? Gideon, the man who through faith, accepted the reduction of his army down to 1% of its strength and went against an army whose, whose camels look like the sands of the seashore, the story tells us, and defeated them without even the use of a sword. Similar stories are told about Barak and Jephthah. Daniel, of course, is who he has in mind when he says that they stopped the mouth of lions and Daniel's buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego quenched the power of fire. David is the one surely he has in mind when he says that they enforce justice. David comes on the scene after this period in Israel's history where there was no king and everybody was doing whatever they wanted. It's a period of total anarchy and injustice. And then David, a gift of God to his people, establishes justice and extends the kingdom as far as God intended it to go. Faith time and again led to miraculous strength for those who knew that they were weak and trusted in God. This list builds, like I've already said, to verse 35. To the story that they would know from the prophet Elijah and another one from the prophet Elisha. Where they meet these great women of faith whose sons have just been taken from them. Women who did not have husbands and would have depended on their sons for their very life. And they've lost them. And they're restored through the power of God and the faith of the prophets. These stories would have been familiar. And the point of this list would be to encourage his readers, right? That faith makes a difference. That if you claim the promises of God here and now, God is for you. He will act for you. He will do what you can't do for yourself. That's the point. It's simple enough. Faith makes a difference, and it pleases God, and it offers Him the the, the chance to show His power and love for anyone who trusts in Him. I want to encourage you. I, I know that sometimes when I read passages like this one or some of the stories in the Old Testament, it's almost like reading Homer, they almost seem mythical and distant, almost belonging to another world. Try to fight that tendency if you can and think about those women who got their kids back as real women, as real as the mom sitting next to you. Imagine that happening and God acting for them in faith and you'll get a little bit of a taste of what this author wants for us. Faith makes a difference. And I don't know about you, but I am convicted when I hear that because I I tend not to think about God delivering in these ways. I tend to read the stories and I... And I I assent to them. You know, my mind says, yes, those things happen. God could do that. He created everything. He rules over it. He is, he is miraculous in His power. But I, I think I tend to put Him in a box that nearly writes Him out of the world that He made. You know, you hear stories even today of mysterious healings, of exorcisms, of, of provision for God's people that seem almost impossible. And, and sometimes it's really hard to claim those. In faith, for someone who's been sort of acculturated in the West like I have, to think that God doesn't mess with what He's set up. But this this passage is a call to fight that tendency in ourselves to trust that, that God can act in the world that He made, and that He does that He does act for His people. It's 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 meant to drive us, I think, to the same thing Jesus calls us for—to a prayer that's bold and powerful that asks good things from the Father who wouldn't give His children stone instead of bread. It's it's a call to us to recognize what Jesus says that we don't have because we don't ask and to pray boldly. It's a promise that faith even brings back the dead. But faith brings back the dead only sometimes. There's a danger in this way of talking about faith, isn't there? This way of talking about faith can give you the impression that Faith is a sort of magic incantation that unlocks the genie's power and that gets you what you want because you said the words in the right way. Faith almost becomes a tool in your hands, a weapon of power to get what you want out of God. Faith, in this way of thinking, can can often become a tool of manipulation, in other words, rather than the humble and empty rest in God knowing what's best for you and doing it for you. What this text preached in an imbalanced way could communicate, I think, is that suffering itself is a result of weak faith, of just not believing enough. That can lead to entitlement, right? So if I have faith, God owes me. It can lead to pride. I have these blessings in my life because I believed enough and God gave them to me. It can lead to shame. I'm experiencing this time of suffering and sorrow because I'm not what I need to be and God is punishing me. And that's why I think verse 35 is as brilliant as it is jarring to us. Don't miss it. Some received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured. Same verse, two sentences next to each other. Both of them examples of faith. The point is that sometimes genuine and life-shaping faith costs you everything. Now I want to walk through this list that's meant to communicate this to us, that faith sometimes could cost you your whole life. And I don't want to tone it down. It's graphic and disturbing, and I think it's meant to be that way because, because this author was writing to folks who were on the verge of giving up Christianity even though they hadn't been asked to suffer in any great way yet. He's trying to remind them of what had happened to those who had been faithful to God in years past. He wants to wake them up and shake them, and, and I want us to, to see this text for all that it is. So I'm going to walk through these examples with you. Verse 35 refers to those who were tortured, refusing to accept release. What commentators believe this word torture here means is it's using it for a very specific practice that was pretty common in the era right before Jesus came. It was a practice of, of binding the human body to some, almost a rack like structure, stretching out the limbs and beating the person to death. It was used during the Roman occupation of Israel as a th- sort of theater entertainment where they would take faithful Jews and stretch them up like this in front of everybody and do it for a kind of sport, almost gladiator-like sport. Jewish historian Philo tells us about this. There's another similar example, the same sort of practice that's told of in a book called Second Maccabees. It's one of those books that come in between the, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament and describe what happens in that several hundred year period between the last of the prophets and the coming of Jesus. It's a period of a lot of warfare and turmoil, of Israel trying to throw off those who had colonized them. And during one of these battles, we're told of a man named Eleazar who, who was given the choice between renouncing God... And embracing idols, or dying by this form of torture, and he chose the torture. That's who this author has in mind. He would have known that his hearers had heard these stories. Others were killed, were told by stoning, something Jesus himself said had been done to to the, uh, to the prophets of the Lord by Jerusalem's leaders. Tradition had it that this is how Jeremiah himself died, that he that he challenged the wrong person in power and was stoned for it. 1 Kings describes death of the, of the prophets at the hands of wicked Ahab, death at the edge of the sword, like it's referred to here. Perhaps the most disturbing image, though, is, is the image of those being sawn in two. Tradition says that's how the prophet Isaiah died. And historical sources outside the Bible talk about this practice. It was another one of the Romans' practices for, for striking fear in the hearts of those who would have opposed the, their rule during the Jewish war Many were killed in this, in this way, still others were told lost not their actual life, but they lost everything that we would say makes life worth living. See the other descriptions in this list? They lost They lost their freedom, given over to chains and imprisonment. They lost the respect of others, being mocked and mistreated, probably flogged naked in public. They lost the comfort and the security of home wandering around in deserts, hiding in caves. This is something we know happened, not just to people in the era in which Jesus lived, but to early Christians for two or 300 years after Christ. There are still these caves that you can tour in Rome where they hid and and worshipped faithfully and, and, and did their art and their music and their preaching. There's still plenty of evidence that this is the way they were forced to live because of their faith. Again, these aren't just mythical tales from a holy book. We can't just write these off like we write off the tales of gruesome death in Homer. These things happen to real people. And they happen to real people because those real people believed. That's the, that's the point here. These are, not, these are not examples of what will happen to you if you don't believe. A sort of cautionary tale. They are promises of, of what may happen to you if you believe. If your faith is real and life-shaping in the way he wants it to be. These things happened not because they lacked faith, but because they had faith. So the point is that faith is not a ticket to some long and prosperous life. It can mean a swift and a painful death or anything in between. I think the remarkable thing, when you take these two halves of the list and you look at them together, the remarkable thing is that they're both examples of faith that's incredible, that's God-honoring. That's what it looks like to endure. Basically what they're saying when you put them together is that whether you stop the mouth of lions or get sawn in two isn't ultimately that. It isn't material for the strength and the object of your faith. It doesn't really matter. What? How in the world can that be true? I think verses 39 and 40 help us here. The point is that if Jesus is alive, if he really did rise from the dead as a sort of down payment on all of the promises God has made to us for a city that is to come, then the difference between receiving back your dead by resurrection and seeing yourself get sawn in two ultimately doesn't matter that much. There's a hint towards this, I think, in verse 35. One of the things we've seen uh, Hebrews do over and over again is give us comparisons between things, right? It's almost been like one long compare and contrast paper. And here we get another comparison in verse 35. It doesn't come through quite so clearly in the ESV, the, the translation I'm using, but the word resurrection gets used twice in this verse. It's translated better life, rising again to a better life in, in my Bible, but it's it's the same word used twice. Over here we have women receive back their dead by resurrection. That's one kind of resurrection. And then we have others were tortured, enduring and refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better resurrection. Two resurrections. What we're told is that those who were willing to die were willing to die because they trusted what was in store for them was better than what amounted to a mere resuscitation. That, that, that even the best example of what faith could accomplish, the restoring of life to a young child, was only a brief resuscitation before death, not a final once and for all vanquishing of death. And that's what these folks lived for. That's why they endured their torture, because they had bigger fish to fry. They wanted life forever. That's the point, I think. I think that this, this is, is only reinforced in verses 39 and 40. I think this is a pretty weird, to me it strikes me as kind of a weird phrase, that they didn't receive what was promised, that part makes enough sense, but that the reason they didn't was that God had had provided something better for us, something that apart from us they couldn't be made perfect. What is is that trying to get at? I, I think this is what it means. What it means is that these two categories of heroes, the ones who through faith received everything, the ones who through faith lost everything, have more in common with each other than they have indifference with each other. These two categories have more in common with each other than they have indifference with each other. What they have in common with each other, what matters more than anything else, is that neither of these categories has received what was promised. That they had to wait Whether they got back their dead or lost their lives. Either way, they were still waiting on the full reality of what was promised to them, waiting for something that God would not deliver until we could enjoy it as well. Waiting, in other words, for the kind of promises to be fulfilled that Hebrews has been about from the beginning. The promise that God has fixed the problem that we cause with our sin. That the relationship at the heart of our lives that we have broken can be healed because God has healed it in Jesus. That ultimately, God is preparing for us a country that is free from all of the blight, the sin, the evil, sorrow, and pain that we know in this life, that all of the best things about this world that we enjoy now are only faint shadows of what's coming for us. That's the promise that is made in Jesus' death, and that's the down payment that has already been received in Jesus' resurrection, and that's what these people live for. They hadn't seen it yet, and we haven't fully seen it yet. That matters more than whether you get your kids back or are sawn in two. The point, let me state it again, is that these two categories of hero, whose life circumstances were dramatically different from each other, as different as we can imagine, had more in common than they had apart because they were both living for something they had not yet tasted of. They were living for that for which we live. They both lived in faith that longed for more even than the blessings they received and that couldn't be thwarted by the fleeting pain that they endured. They lived for the resurrection of Jesus that he promises to us. And in this light, whether they stopped the mouths of lions or were sawn in two just didn't matter. It was immaterial to what they lived for with such longing. Let me put it differently. The fact that these ultimate promises that they lived for had not yet been fulfilled, that put these other miraculous victories, this whole laundry list of incredible things that happened to them, that put these things in proper perspective. It minimized them in a way. Almost like a steak dinner on the night of your execution. Well, it's nice, but if it still ends in death, then what good really is it? And it also minimizes how much we let our pain in this life define for us who we are because it's, it's saying that whether you get sawn in two or, or you know, tortured on some sort of rack is ultimately not going to affect the thing that you really live for. It minimizes the pain of those who lost everything in this life. And this is a radical, radical truth that means so much for how we approach Christian faith. And I think we need to park here for a few minutes more and try to savor it there's danger in every analogy that you could come up with for something like this. Danger is on so many, in so many ways that I'm going to, I am going to acknowledge later on. But bear with me through an analogy that I do think helps us connect with the central point of this text. That the difference between having everything and losing everything ultimately isn't a big difference because the promises we live for are what they are. Imagine that you've won a trip to Paris, right? All expenses paid, and you don't even have to sit through one of those, you know, condo timeshare pitches that we've all heard of. There's no strings attached. You just got to claim it in faith, right? By boarding the plane to head to Europe. Now imagine one scenario in which, as you're about to board your plane, you get unexpectedly upgraded to first class. That means... That you get a better seat, a good night's sleep, you get a good meal and nicer headphones, you get the temporary sense of superiority over those on the backside of the curtain. And when you wake up in the morning, you're in Paris, right? Now who wouldn't appreciate this? Who wouldn't savor it even as a gift of, of, of the grace of the benefactor who made the whole trip possible? It should be savored like that. Now imagine another scenario. You board the same you board your own plane in faith, the trouble starts right away. Say there's a storm that means you can't take off for several hours, but you're already stuck on the plane, so you're just sitting there. Say you're stuck between a crying, defecating two-year-old and a large man from a culture that, for all of its you know, beauty and um, and, and and richness doesn't value personal hygiene quite so highly. Let's say after takeoff, things only get worse, that the weather means a diversion and you get, you got to make an extra stop at Dulles and you got to go through Frankfurt before you can get to Paris. You don't get to sleep. The TV screen doesn't work. But if you're thinking clearly, if you're thinking clearly, if you're not caught up in the moment, if you're not, in other words, a slave to your immediate circumstances, then you remember that this temporary suffering it doesn't ultimately matter because the next morning you're going to be in Paris. For two weeks, at no cost to you, you're going to enjoy the best that human culture has to offer. You're going to spend hours in the Louvre. You're going to sip coffee in the open air on the Champs-Élysées. You'll savor the gardens of Versailles, take a day trip out through the wine country. You taste that by faith. And you say that the thing promised to you is so great that the temporary suffering you're forced to endure on the way doesn't compare. You would still, what you're saying is that if that's waiting for me on the other end, I would still want to go there. Even if I'm not the one who gets the upgrade at first class. Even if I've got to sit through a night of misery on a plane. In fact, you could even say that the one whose flight is delayed and whose journey is so ridden with pain savors the hope of Paris even more sweetly and fully than the one who got the upgrade. Now, I I really think this is the essence of what this text is trying to communicate to us. I think it sets us up to consider how not to let ourselves get comfortable to rest in the fact of our ease in this life because if death is coming, then the ease that we enjoy just isn't that great. It's temporary and it's meaningless. But what I really want to do in the few minutes I have left is to speak to the problem of our pain and suffering in this life. Here's where this illustration is kind of dangerous. You know, it's just fun and a little bit lighthearted and it could be taken by those who have truly suffered as minimizing pain that I can't understand. What this picture, I think, is meant to do is not minimize what you've endured, but to maximize the beauty of what's promised to you, to help you see that even through intense, almost unimaginable pain, pain that someone who hasn't lived through it just couldn't fully understand, even in spite of that pain... What's waiting on you is greater. I've only been a pastor now for two years, and our church is a small one. But I still could have never imagined two years ago how deeply you guys have suffered. I have seen firsthand and heard about stories from the past of people in our church who have suffered in ways that I just could not have imagined before. I've always promised in those talks my best attempt to empathize but you guys know it only goes so far. I can say that Jesus empathizes that he's been there that he is the high priest who knows us because he's been where we are and that that gives him an insight into our experience that you can't get through any other human and I could say that that should drive you to him and to savor his promises I will say that, that's true. But what I really want to say to you, in light of this text, in light of the contrast between having everything and losing everything and that difference not really being that big of a deal, if Jesus really is alive and that's what's waiting for us, in light of that point, what I want to say to you, what I I desperately want you to hear this morning, is that you are a child of God for whom is being prepared a new world of which all the beauty in this world is just a faint shadow. And you know what that means? That means this. That means that your pain, however deep and real it is, does not define you. Your pain is not the last word. That is not to minimize what you've been through. That is to free you from the tyranny of what you've been through. I know that, you, that, there, that there are people in our church who have experienced abuse, emotional and physical, from even from those who are closest to you, from those would-be protectors of you. I know that there are people in our church who have suffered despair that seemed hopeless, completely hopeless. I know that you have suffered, but your pain does not define you. And that should free you from what comes so natural to us when we suffer. What comes natural to us is to look at someone who's enjoying life's blessings who seems to be getting everything that they want and oblivious to what you're experiencing, what comes natural to us is to resent that, right? What comes natural maybe is to get mad at God, to feel like God isn't fair, to look at the difference between stopping the mouths of lions and being sawn in two and wonder what it would take for me to be able to enjoy the stopping mouth of lions part and, and to avoid the sawing in two part. And if you let your pain define you and separate you from everybody who doesn't share it, you know what? You're going to be stuck on an island and you're going to be tempted to self pity. That's what comes natural. But faith is radically supernatural. Faith looks at your pain and at someone else's apparent ease of life and says, you know what? The difference doesn't matter because we're claiming the same hope. We own the same identity as children of God. We are headed for the same end in a country that is still to come. And that unites us in a way that our pain or ease could never separate. This sort of faith is our calling and it is God's gift to the world. I love that phrase that those who suffered in faith, who persevered, were men and women of whom the world was not worthy. The world doesn't deserve the statement that those lives make. What those those lives say to the world is that God is greater than anything you could take away from me and he's greater than anything that you could give to me and apart from him I don't want to live but with him, with him who cannot be taken from me I have all that I need. That's a statement that is God's gift to the world. And it's the statement we're all called to make with every breath, whether we're stopping the mouths of lions or sawn in two. That's a faith that is only possible through the gift of God's grace and through the encouragement of each other. So let's, leave, let's live this faith together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we want this, but our, our minds are so easily distracted by things that seem more vivid to us in your promises. So like we do every week, hearing the call to faith, we only know how to respond by pleading with you to give it to us, to help us, to own this, to savor it, to embrace it with joy. Overcome the unbelief that's in all of us, please, Father, and replace it with a faith that has no fear, that is unshakable. Because it's tied to a city whose foundations have been laid by God himself. Help us to be faithful to ministering to each other as we live for that city now. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.